Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter. This is the channel that loves atheists. I'm so glad that you are here. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about the nature of time and God's relationship to it and um, some other possibilities for cosmology as we take a look at uh, the question that I've most often dealt with as it relates to the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a few moments because I think we need to set the stage. But you should know that this video is a response video to some non-theists um, that uh, presented responses to a video that I made uh, called 10 Questions for Atheists. And that is in a series that is ongoing. This is uh, video number five. This is on the fifth question of the 10. But you don't have to have seen the previous videos in order to benefit from this one, I don't think. So don't go anywhere. Um, this video can stand alone. And so I hope that, that um, I hope you find that to be the case. All right, so let's jump right in here. So I really like the guys in this video. I've had uh, a little bit of interaction with them online, and it's always been very pleasant. I appreciate them because even though these guys, one is an atheist and one is, I think, agnostic, um, but they're not Christians and they're not theists, uh, at the very least, they do talk a lot about if there is a God, what is he like? And how could some of these arguments for God's existence uh, best be presented? And so I like that about them. And you can tell that they get really excited about it as they move through the topics. So I I'm going to enjoy that. But unfortunately, this this uh, video, in order for it to be widely accessible, I think it, it, it involves me um, doing a little bit of work here at the beginning just to explain what we're doing here. So um, I'll get to the question in just a moment, but basically I wanted to ask a question about how atheists feel about the fact that they have I don't think as good of answers at their disposal because of atheism. I realize that atheism is not a worldview. I've, I've, I realize that you're going to tell me that in the comments, even though I'm making this statement right now. Um, but a worldview that does include atheism, I think, if, you, if, if theism is not on the table, I think that there are um, limited options in explaining how the universe came to be. And I think that those, uh, those answers are not as good as theism. I think they're, they're, they're far inferior to theism. Um, although I'll try to measure my rhetoric because I know that that can, can upset, has upset some of these guys in this video. Not upset, but you can tell they got passionate because I did say things bombastically about this. Uh, but anyway, um, so I, I think that's the case. But that means that I need to explain a little bit to you about um, how the Kalam cosmological argument works. Typically, it exists as a syllogism of two premises and a conclusion and then is followed often by a conceptual analysis. The argument is um, everything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause for its existence. All right. And then we uh, argue from that in the conceptual analysis. We say, OK, if we if we get to the point where we understand that 
um, everything that, uh, that the universe began to exist. The universe must have a cause for its existence. Sorry, the universe must have a cause for its existence. Then what can we know about that cause? Well, um, we can know a few things, perhaps. One thing that we might be able to know is, okay, whatever serves as the cause of the physical universe uh, must not be the things in the universe because the things in the universe are the things that were caused uh, or came to be, right? So, um, what, so what is the universe made of, generally speaking? Well, generally speaking, time, space, and physical matter. Okay, so that tells us that the cause of the physical universe must be something that's timeless, spaceless, and not made of physical matter, non-material. Okay, all right, that, that sounds good so far. Now, obviously, there are objections to all these things, and I'm just speeding through it to get to the point of contention in this video. But, um, but so you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material something. Um, are there things like that? Maybe, maybe abstract objects, maybe numbers, if you think those are real, um, that kind of thing. Uh, but those things don't have what we call causal powers. They don't make anything happen. They don't cause anything. And so we need something that can cause something to happen. And so what sort of thing could, in a spaceless, timeless state of nothingness, where nothing is happening and everything seems somewhat static, what could serve as a cause for the beginning of the physical universe? Well, um, there are a number of ways to get to a personal agent or a mind. But the way that I like the best, and I've used this many times for years, didn't realize uh, that I, I think I knew J.P. Moreland was using it, but I was uh, interested and excited lately to know that uh, notice that Andrew Loki used it in his discussion with Graham Oppie and says he talked about it in his book. But the idea is that in a state of timeless nothingness, and this is going to be important later on when we get to the guys in the video, you don't have um, you, you don't you don't have anything happening. Right. Because it's timeless. Um, and so you, there is no determinism. To, to lead to a cause, and there's nothing happening randomly or spontaneously to lead to a cause um, on its, without a mind. So what you would have to have is, uh, if you don't have determinism and you don't have randomness, wh what's left? Well, a libertarianly free choice. So the spaceless, timeless, non-material cause, I would say we have good reason to think perhaps it has libertarian freedom. And what sort of things have libertarian freedom? Well, personal minds do, agents, personal agents do. And so for that reason, what we have is a couple other things actually too. It has to be sufficiently powerful to create the universe. So you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful mind as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Now that's how I typically present this. Um, and that's all gonna come up. Some of that's gonna come up, but actually where much of this is gonna happen is if we go back to um, premise two of the argument. So everything that begins to exist must have a cause. That's premise one. Premise two is the universe began to exist. Now, um, one of the, either the universe itself or a feature of the universe, uh, time, um, has been argued that perhaps that's not true, but perhaps time at least, and perhaps time in the physical universe could stretch back infinitely into the past such that there was no beginning. Um, it, it's just an, it's, it's a past infinite series of moments or events. And, uh, if that were the case, uh, perhaps you wouldn't need theism, at least on the basis of this argument. And so this is going to be important in some of the discussions that we're going to have today. So I'm going to go ahead and lay out a couple of things. Why should we think that the universe cannot be past infinite or that the timeline cannot be, the, let's just say the metric timeline can't be past infinite. Well, there are a number of reasons for that. So William Lane Craig is going to come up. These guys bring him up. And I think uh, it's important to bring him up when we talk about the Kalam. He's the modern champion of the Kalam cosmological argument. And um, uh, a couple, one reason that he gives is there are, if, if the universe is past infinite, then you could never 
the, the timeline could have never, the moments passing could never have crossed that infinite series of temporal moments or causal events to arrive at this moment today. Now, when we talk about infinite, we're not talking about a whole lot of something. We're not talking about, like we may say poetically, there's an infinite number of grains of sand on the beaches of the world. Well, there's not. There's actually a number. It's an insanely huge number, but it's still a number. When we talk about the stars in the sky, they're infinite. Well, they're not really infinite. There's a number. Even if we talked about the number of physical a of atoms in the physical universe, there actually is a number. Even if we have a multiverse, we talk about all the atoms in all the multiverses. I can't even imagine that number, but there's a number. There actually is a number. It's not literally infinite, unless, of course, you think the multiverse is literally infinite, which has its own problems for the same reasons. So um, so there's a number. But when we talk, uh, when we say infinite, we're, we're saying that, that, no, 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 it's not that it's a really big number. It's that it's, it's, it's more than numbers. It's infinite. It, it's limitless in that sense, uh, numerically. And so there's a couple of things that are important to this. So on the one hand, um, if you have a, a past infinite series stretching back, then you could have never crossed a, an actual infinite number of moments or events to arrive at the moment we're inhabiting right now, at the present. And uh, there's a reason for that. So uh, one reason for that is, to, is, or one example that is meant to show that, the absurdities that happen if you try to think of infinites like that existing in reality, is that you would have to have, so the, one of the examples is, uh, is this infinite library, and that's my favorite one. There's another one, Hilbert's Hotel, that gets used a lot by Craig, but let's just go with the infinite library. And in this library, you have an infinite number of books, uh, a literally infinite, actually infinite number of books. And every other book is red, and every other book is black. Okay, every other book is red, every other, and there's infinite, okay? Now, let's say that you decided to clean out the library. And so you wanted to empty out the library. So you took out all the black books and left only the red books. You've, you've taken out all, all of the black books. Now remember, every other book is black, every other book is red, on to infinity. So you have, uh, we would think, you would have taken away now half of infinity, right? Unfortunately though, you didn't take away uh, half of infinity. How many books are left? You still have an infinite number. Uh, why? Because it's not just a really big number and you took half of that really big number away. It was literally infinite. And if you take half away from infinity, if you could do such a thing, you'd still be left with infinity. You've made no progress. So here's so so you may have to let that thing sink in for just a moment. But so let's now think about that in terms of the, the past history of the universe or just a past his, a past uh, infinite timeline that you have there. Um, if you were somehow able to impossibly cross half of the amount of time uh, or causal events from wherever you started, which is a whole other problem, to get to this moment in the present, you'd have made no progress at all. Because just like emptying out half of the books in the infinite library still leaves you with an infinite number to go, um, emptying out half of the history of uh, the timeline doesn't empty out the timeline and you've made no progress at all. You've still got just as much time ahead of you because it's actually infinite. So that's that's one of the problems with this is that if you try to put that into reality as an actual infinite, the way Craig is talking about what you're left with is mathematical absurdities like this. And I think this show there's a good reason to think based on this, that the universe cannot be past infinite. And even if you want to step out of the universe and just say a timeline stretching back that's metric can't be past infinite like that. Um, another problem is that if you did start and it's kind of a different phrasing of the same problem, if you started counting right now 
you can never actually reach infinity by successive addition. Now, Alex Malpass, who has had some measure of success on YouTube and debated William Lee Craig on this, he has an article on this. I don't know if it's out yet. He sent me a, a, pre, a, a pre-release copy of it, but he has an article talking about how he thinks you get to infinity by successive addition. Um, and we're going to come back to that in just a few moments when we look at the first guy in the video that we're going to respond to. But um, I, I, or not, not at, not at Malpass, we're going to look at the idea of, um, getting there by successive addition. Uh, but for the reason that I've just described, it seems like that doesn't work. Another problem with that is in a past infinite series, there is no first moment. There just isn't. So one way that JP Moreland has talked about this is try to jump out of a hole without a bottom to it. And don't try to get cute and say, well, maybe you can ninja off the walls. It doesn't work like that. You can't jump out of a hole without a bottom to it. And the point that's being made is if you don't have a point to start from, how would you ever get to this point on the timeline? How would the timeline have gotten to this point on the timeline, at least on a, uh, a theory of time? So th this, is, uh, this is all, uh, I think, some of the challenges and some of the ways that we present it. Now, there's another thing that we need to bring up before we move on, and that is this, that um, uh, when William Lane Craig talks about this, and this will come up in the discussion, he talks about the idea of an actual infinite versus a potential infinite. Uh, an actual infinite, we can look at a line, any particular line, and we can imagine dividing that line an infinite number of times, uh, but we can't actually do it. We can't actually divide it an infinite number of times. We can conceive of it, and that's and and so in this sense, he's talking about it's a potential infinite because you can imagine potentially dividing it an infinite number of times. Uh, the future is potentially infinite in this way. Um, we it, it will always be approaching, but never arriving at actual infinity because you can't get there by um, uh, uh, successive addition. But an actual infinite would be something like if there were an infinite number of grains of sand or an infinite timeline stretching back uh, into the past or something like that. So uh, potential versus actual. We, we can imagine the, the, the infinite, but the actual existing in reality this way is um, what we're saying in terms of a timeline into the past or in terms of a library doesn't seem possible. It seems to result in absurdities. Okay, now with that, we're going to move on now and to actually take a look at what some of these guys have to say. And uh, th there's only two. We're only looking at two atheists today because I thought that this was going to be involved enough. And I have to say for you guys that are in this video, I thought that this was, while you just sketched out some things briefly and didn't weren't able to get very technical because you just didn't devote a whole hour to it, and I completely understand that. You were going through 10 questions from yours truly. Um, still, even with just the sketching, I think this was the most rigorous response that I got on this question and perhaps on any question. And that's not a slight to the other people I've responded to. I, I'm just saying that's what I found to be the case. All right, so let's move on, and let's. Uh, this is going to be me presenting the question, and then we're going to listen to the first guy's response. Now, I know we've all got our talking points, but I want you to struggle to be as sincere with yourself as you can right now. Doesn't it bother you a little bit that when we come to talk about the origins of the universe, and if there's a multiverse, the origin of that too, that the only real options you've got besides God is a past infinite universe, which is impossible, or the universe coming to exist uncaused out of nothing, or something far less clear than even those? It seems that for any worldview that includes atheism, there's a massive blind spot when it comes to the origin of the universe, and all the attempts to try and circumvent that problem seem desperate, and at least far less likely than theism. My question isn't just what do you typically say about this, because I'm well aware of the responses. My question is simply this. When you step away from the debate mode that it's so easy for us all to get into online, doesn't this issue destabilize you a little bit? It seems to fit really poorly with any worldview that includes atheism. Yeah. Um, it's really like, what do I think about it outside of the debate mode? Um, I, 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 when it comes to questions of like ultimate 
cosmological origins, my favorite thing to do is just be like, I don't really know. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of metaphysical theses right there. And Graham Oppie has written a lot about this in terms of when we talk about cosmology, cosmological arguments, cosmological origins. There's so much to get sift through in terms of causality and understanding of causality and modality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, of course, I think the dichotomy he presented there is, is false. You know, this sort of past infinity or multiverses versus uncaused out of nothing. That's not a dichotomy I accept. You know, again, there are naturalistic models upon which there are necessary beings, either one or multiple, and then modal views that branch from there that help explain things. Um, and, you know, I honestly, you know, I because of some arguments um, based on the PSR by like Ricky Bliss, I sometimes find myself sort of like pondering an infinite regression causal model as like just being interesting. So I don't think it's, I don't think just dismissing those out of hand um, is a good strategy. I just kind of like to play with some different theories on this. I don't really have a super settled view. Um, I like some of the necessary foundation models. But so I've, I, my, my point to get across here is just that there's a lot to say about this and it's very complicated. And so um, it's hard to get, you know, a soundbite of somebody's view on it. But that dichotomy between, you know, just uncaused out of nothing versus infinity, that's not really a model. Um, any philosophers of religion working on this would accept, at least I don't think so. Yeah. Now I want to say something about that real quick. And um, I don't think that he did this intentionally because I think these are really nice guys and they try to be charitable. Um, however, uh, I just want to point out that's not a dichotomy I presented either. Not exactly. I said um, uh, you have the uh, past infinite universe. Um, you have the universe coming into being uncaused out of nothing or something less clear than that. That's what I said. So I actually left open the door for other possibilities like the one that we're going to see in just a few moments that I think is less clear than even those things. Although I think it's more rigorous and more thoughtful than, than that. So I just want to say it's not a, it's not a dichotomy. If you want to say, well, these philosophers religion I'm thinking about, they don't think of only those two options. I don't either, but, but, I, but I'm, I'm presenting other options too that are less clear than that as as a third alternative there um now we're going to see whether you think it's clear in just a moment uh but he also does something very charitable for me here that kind of comes on the heels of what i've just said so let's hear what he says um so that's the main thing i want to get across so that's that's not a true dichotomy and again you maybe again he, he, audience in this video at least the first five questions seems to be more so the new atheist crowd people that would read lawrence krauss's book and be like yeah exactly so i get the dialectical context there. Um, yeah. And that's an important thing to mention because the reality is people have mentioned to me a lot of times, why do you go after, why do you respond to the new atheist crowd like that? Why, why are you always responding to people that have YouTube channels and those sorts of things uh, that are a part of the new atheism? There are people that have YouTube channels that are not a part of the new atheism, but why, why do you, why do you do that? And the reason is because um, I, you know, it, it has come somewhat as a surprise to some people when, when they listen to me talking about something like atheistic arguments. And then the next video, they, they hear me saying something that sounds a little bit pastoral to someone or um, responding to a YouTuber with scripture or uh, encouraging people to pray for others. It's like, wait a minute. I thought he was just doing the the whole logic and reason and, and theistic arguments and, and that sort of thing here. He's acting like he actually believes this stuff. Now, I don't think anyone would say it like that, but that's how it sounds. It's like, wait a minute. That, you, the apologists aren't supposed to function like that. He's acting like he's like he means it. He's telling people to pray and things like that. Yeah. Well, there's a reason for that. And it's related to what he just said. And it is that 
Um, I consider myself first and foremost to be an evangelist and secondly, an apologist. The only reason that I'm an apologist is to undergird my work as an evangelist. I want to see you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is true. I'm confident about it. Um, and, uh, and so I want to convince others. I'm not just here for a conversation. I love having conversations. I'm happy to do that online. And technically, I'm open to uh, being convinced that I'm wrong. My worldview, as I've said many times, is in principle falsifiable. And if you falsify it, I will be convinced. However, I'm very confident uh, that uh, at my now 40 years, I have seen most of the arguments uh, that, that have gained the popularity and most of the criticisms of uh, my perspective. And while there are things I haven't heard and I'm always trying to learn more, um, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I find it, I would find it very surprising to run into something that will undo everything that I think I've learned about all these things now, but Hey, if you're an atheist out there, keep trying, I'm all for you. Uh, but because of that, my ministry, and I don't mind calling it a ministry on YouTube and online is geared toward unbelievers that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time and toward believers that they would be affirmed in their faith. That's what I'm trying to do here. And because of that, I've got a couple options. I can spend most of my time going after the academics who might write a book and their students read it and almost nobody else. Uh, that's not true of everyone. Uh, I've got I've, I've got some of these books. We're going to talk about one in just a moment. Or I could spend my time going after someone like uh, Dan Barker or Matt Dillahunty who can make one YouTube video talking about what they had for lunch and 15,000 people are going to see it. Th those are the people that I think are actually uh, doing the work of convincing people that there's something wrong with Christianity. And so I devote my time there because remember, I'm only apologist insofar as I'm work, doing the work of, uh, of an evangelist. And so whenever he's right about the context of this, I'm throwing out the things that I think are most common among the new atheist crowd. That said, I'm happy to respond to what gets brought up here. And uh, so let's keep trucking and see what Joe has to say. But as far as my answer, I just say, I think, you know, um, being comfortable with not knowing is sort of an essential part of doing philosophy, especially when we're talking things that are so far removed. And Philippe Leon's talked about this, modal skepticism. We're talking about things that are so far removed from our experience and so far removed from what we normally know about in terms of when we talk about knowledge. I'm fine with kind of being open and having theories and models that I like and maybe prefer over others, but not really committing to one. Um, but just to say there, there are a lot of options that atheists have. It's also worth pointing out that atheists... Um, have a have a broad range of metaphysical views amongst themselves as as an umbrella but um yeah i mean there's a i mean we could talk about just this point forever um samuel's freezing a little bit but we should still be fine hopefully um there's a lot that we could spend you know a two-hour video just on this point based talking about cosmological origins but in the interest of being somewhat brief that's all i'll say about it for now um joe i'll turn it over to you here yeah. Yeah. Before we go on to Joe, that wasn't Joe. But before we go on to Joe, um, I, yeah, I forgot. He did say something that I wanted to respond to. Um, I think someone just came in my office, but I think in reviewing this video, he said something about um, that he's impressed with the possibility of Graham Oppie talking about the possibility of a past infinite um, uh, history or, or something like that, or the, the, the events being past uh, infinite. Um, and so I want to talk about that for just a moment because Oppie, in his book, Arguing About Gods, has a couple of things to say about. Um, at least one of the analogies that I've just discussed. So in Oppie's book, he's going through and he's looking at all the theistic arguments and um, he takes a look at cosmological arguments and he deals with what we just said here. So let me quote from Graham Oppie in his Arguing About Gods from page 140 in my copy. And he says, third, Craig claims that the kinds of puzzles, uh, puzzle cases that are discussed 
in Oppie 2006, that's a different work, show that various absurdities would result if an actual time, uh, actual infinite were to be instantiated in the real world. As I noted in that other work, there are good reasons for claiming that the puzzles to which Craig adverts, primarily Craig's library and Hilbert's hotel, actually show no such thing. Now we don't, we're not going to get that here. Apart from the errors that Craig makes in his assessment of the puzzle cases that he discusses, the key point to note is that these uh, that these cases simply have these puzzle cases simply have no bearing on, for example, the question of whether the world is spatially infinite or the question of whether the world has an infinite past. At most, it seems that one might suppose that these puzzles show that there cannot be certain kinds of actual infinities, but one could hardly suppose that these puzzles show that there cannot be actual infinities of any kind. So um, that's obviously he's, he's talking about let's just focus on the library. He's talking about the library thing here. And he's saying it, it doesn't show that that uh, actual infinities of any kind don't um, exist. Uh, it's just it, it's just showing that certain kinds do. And so it fails. Well, I take it that what the library example is meant to illustrate is not that you just couldn't have an actual infinite collection of books or an actual infinite set of a certain sort or other. Now, I do want to say here we're talking about uh, quantitative um infinities rather than qualitative infinities. That's a different discussion. But I take it to show the, the library example to show that you can't have quantitatively infinite actual infinities of the sort that you would have with the passing of time, with a past infinite timeline. We'll get to some other ways of thinking about time in just a moment when we go to Joe's uh, discussion or Joe's comments. But for now, just as the removal of half of the books in an infinite library would leave you no closer to emptying the library, what I take to be the impossible notion of crossing half of an infinite timeline would leave you no closer to emptying out history and arriving at the present. So I do think there is a parallel there. And so I think that the uh, analogy remains and still stands and is appropriate. Now, I will say that when we talk about uh, getting to infinity by successive addition, there is actually an analogy that Oppie gives in the book that I think is pretty good. And uh, I had to think about it for just a second. I'm going to read it to you here because I think it was pretty powerful um, as a visual. So Craig talks about um, if you had if you had these slabs in uh, in some space and a guy is jumping from one to the other, how many would he have to cross to get to, to where how many would he have to cross to get to infinity? Um, and we're no longer just counting numbers, numbers, numbers. We're now at infinity. This is to point out that you can't get to infinity by successive addition. And Oppie offers another uh, analogy in place of that. He says on page 143 of the same copy, he says, but what if we suppose that the time lapse between slabs decreases according to a geometric ratio and that the man is replaced by a bouncing ball whose height of bounce decreases according to the same geometric ratio? If the ball hits the first slab at one minute to 12, the second slab at half a minute to 12, the third slab at a fourth minute to 12, and so on, then the ball can come to rest on a slab at 12, having made infinitely many bounces on different slabs in the interval between one minute to 12 and 12. In this example, we have a process, the bouncing of the ball, that plainly does form an actual infinite by successive addition. Now, I'm going to say something kind of blunt. Uh, I, I love Graham Oppie, by the way. I think um, I agree with other critics who... who uh, very uh, bombastically criticized the book, arguing about gods, uh, but I'll still agree with what most of them say, which is this is a must-read book for people interested in theistic arguments. Um, now, that said, I'm going to say something kind of straightforward about this, which is I want to know where that ball is, Oppie. Show me the ball, right? Let me see that ball bounce an infinite number of times. Uh, why couldn't you produce such a thing? Because that sort of a thing is, that sort of an actual infinite 
isn't going to happen. And why isn't it going to happen? Well, because this is precisely the importance of understanding what Craig means by a potential infinite versus an actual infinite. You can conceive of this um, this uh, th this ball bouncing an infinite number of times, just like you can conceive of dividing a line an infinite number of times. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it, it, it will function as an actual infinite in space and time. And I think that's an important thing. So show me that ball and then we'll have something to talk about. Until then, I just think this is a description of a potential infinite. Um, all right, so now let's move on to Joe's comments. And by the way, this is where it, if, if I haven't already done this, I have to admit that um, it would be very easy in this discussion uh, at this level for me to misunderstand something that you're saying or to miscommunicate or for me to miss something. And so I just want to be humble about that and just say, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm communicating wrongly what you're saying when I comment on it or if I'm responding to something that you're not saying, None of that is intentional. We're in complex waters. And I really like you, Joe. I, I like both of these guys, all three of these guys. Um, I, I like these guys from what I can see of them, admire them, uh, their work in, in this area, their interests, their passions. And so I, I just hope you see this as one friend coming to uh, respond to other friends. I, I hope that's the spirit with which you take this. Uh, but we're going to go on now to Joe and we'll hear what he has to say. And I'll try to make some comments. I guess my, my main thing is that it also seems to me to be a false dichotomy or trichotomy, um, and especially characterizing. Um, Wait a second. You notice he said it's a trichotomy because he recognizes that I didn't just offer those two that he saw as the false dichotomy, but I also said something far less clear than that. And I did come back around and say later that seem uh, some of these other options seem desperate. And I, I'm just I'm just trying to wear my heart on my sleeve and tell you the way I see this. It strikes me as desperate. OK, I don't mean that in an unkind way. I do see how that can come across as uncharitable. Um, and, and but I'm just I'm just trying to be straightforward here. Views that number one aren't positing a, a past infinity and views that aren't having something coming out of nothing, characterizing those as desperate. Um, that just seems to me to be uncharitable. I mean, there are lots of models within philosophy of religion, philosophy of physics. Um, philosophy of time that are non-theistic, but which both avoid an infinite past and don't have something coming out of nothing. And so, and they don't seem to, they're not ad hoc. They're not uh, desperate. I mean, <clears throat> okay. So now he's going to give us one of these things. And remember specifically what I said, something I said, you've either got a past infinite universe, something coming out of nothing or something far less clear than that. I know, now, I want us to note whether this at least strikes you prima facie as less clear. Maybe not. Uh, maybe not. That's for you to decide. But he's going to offer for us an alternative hypothesis for us to consider, and we're going to walk through it. It just that that seemed to me to be a bit uncharitable. Um, now, like one such model, I mean, you could say that there is some kind of um, maybe foundational reality is a kind of neutral monist stuff, neutral monist substance. Now, I want you to remember those words. Foundational reality is neutral monist substance. Um, so that's a view in, in philosophy of mind. And so this kind of fundamental stuff, you could say, uh, pre-existed the, uh, the beginning of the universe. Maybe it was uh, only ontologically prior to the universe in, in a kind of timeless sense. Um, I see that we've lost Samuel. You're muted, Micah. Sorry, I was gonna say just keep going on with your point, and we'll you'll see what happens with him here. Yeah, just just round this one out, and we'll see. Uh, okay, um, where was I? Oh yeah, I was talking about. Um, okay, yeah, uh, I'm ready to begin. Whenever you're gonna have to cut this out. 
I was saying uh, before Samuel disconnected again, unfortunately, that I was I was uh, a bit distracted because of that. But um, there are views in philosophy of mind according to which reality is kind of this neutral monist substance or neutral monist stuff, and it has various different properties, different aspects. And on this view, we could have this kind of neutral monist underlying fundamental substance that could be uh, it could exist ontologically prior to the beginning of time, and it, and it could be timeless sans. Uh, the existence of time and temporal with time, a la Craig's view. It's just a non-theistic kind of William Lane Craig view. You could also have um, a kind of non-metric or amorphous time prior to creation in which um, the, the fundamental sub, um, neutral monist substance exists, or maybe a, a fundamental quantum field exists in a, in a state that's non-metric and metri uh, metrically amorphous prior to creation. For a view like that with respect to theism, Ryan Mullins defends that view, Richard Swinburne defends that view, um, and it's just a, a non-theistic version of Ryan Mullins and Swinburne's view with respect to the origin of the universe. Uh, because again, um, the beginning of the universe, that's that's only the beginning of metric time. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, finally, uh, I just think that, uh, you know, you could also have naturalist-friendly versions who that aren't uh, neutral monist. You could have some kind of fundamental quantum field or maybe the universal wave function or, or what have you. Popular views in the philosophy of physics that, that different metaphysicians are working on, uh, on which there's this kind of naturalistic foundation. And it could be, you know, like just one fundamental quantum field and it exists uh, prior to creation. So it, it, it didn't begin to exist because it either exists in this non-metric time, which there aren't any sort of beginnings or comings into being. Uh, and on this view, the past is finite. So, um, and, and, you know, it would just indeterministically or spont spontaneously give rise to the existence of the universe. And so you avoid a kind of modal collapse, because if it necessarily gave, go, gave rise to it and it's necessarily existent, then the universe would be necessarily existent. And so on this, it's, you'd get, you get pretty much all the desiderata, right? You get a finite past. You get whatever begins to exist has a cause. You get every contingent thing uh, is explained. You get all this sort of stuff, and it's perfectly compatible with naturalism, and it's not ad hoc, it's not desperate, it's perfectly respectable. So that's my, I mean, I know that was a bit long, but I'm passionate <laughs> about this particular point, so. Yeah, I know you are. We've talked about this one a lot. So yeah. Okay, so um, we'll comment on this now. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, it's an interesting part of the discussion. So there's a couple of things that he talked about. So first he talked about um, that what you could have, if, if, if you're trying to work within that framework of we're not talking about a past infinite um, timeline and, we, uh, and we're not talking about something coming uncaused out of nothing or something like that, then you could have something like this. You could have um, this neutral mon monist su substance of some sort. Now, what I take him to be referring to here is this. Um, so you, you, when we talk about um, origins and we talk about uh, fundamental reality, really, we're talking about oftentimes whether you have um, whether mind is a fundamental or material uh matter is fundamental material stuff is fundamental um it's kind of like a chicken and egg sort of thing which comes first what undergirds reality is it is it mind or is it matter and um one of the one of the problems here is that when you run into uh, issues like consciousness and naturalists are trying to work on consciousness um, the, the difficulty of the hard problem of consciousness like how is it that a certain arrangement of physical particles and matter um emerges in aboutness and this conscious experiencer and qualia and all these kind of things. And so one of the ways that some have tried to deal with that is this panpsychism, that there is something um, it, it, that matter has some sort of an element of consciousness at the at the um, uh, at, at the level of um, uh, like fundamental particles. Well, what 
um, neutral monist uh, positions would say is that there is this neutral stuff, this neutral substance, both words I think he used a moment ago, stuff, substance, right? Uh, that is um, neutral. It's uh, that w between mind and matter. And so uh, that perhaps this neutral substance of, of, of uh, that, could, that could be mind or matter or both or whatever exists, sans the physical universe. And, and so that could be the that could be something that that pre-exists. Now, from there, he also wants to offer two possibilities for what that that existence sans the physical universe is like. And that is a state of timelessness like you would have on Craig's view. I still don't exactly know whether it would be exactly like Craig's view, because on Craig's view, you would have uh, you'd have spaceless, timeless and non-material. And here you would have some, I don't know if it would have to be matter in some sense, I would think this neutral substance, I don't know. Um, I'm not as well read into that literature, but whatever this neutral substance is, um, it, I would think it would exist spatially in, in some sense. Uh, and so the, you'd have something of the physical universe there, but put that aside for just a moment. You have this, um, this neutral, uh, monism, and then you have, um, either one of two possibilities, the timeless a timeless existence there, um, sans the physical universe. And that's where he said, just like what normally William Lane Craig would describe or something so that you've got, you've, everything's the same, except there's no theism basically. Um, and so that's a possibility. And then another possibility is that you have it existing, this, this, um, neutral monism in non-metric time. So let's talk about each one of those. And that'll bring us to the end of our discussion, I think. So, um, when it comes to the timelessness issue, we have, I think, still a problem because I, and I realize he tried to get around this by talking about you have an indeterministic moment where something spontaneous happens like you might see in um, uh, uh, like you might see in uh, the collapse of the waveform in, in quantum mechanics, in quantum indeterminacy. But let's let's talk about this for just a few moments. So you've got this neutral monism. You've got this timeless state. Here's the problem there. Uh, that solves everything except for this. Remember when we ran our conceptual analysis just a while ago, what we did was we said, hold on a second. What can we know about this cause? Well, perhaps it would be spaceless, timeless, non-material. Uh, but in order for it to, in a state of timelessness, to bring about something, to cause something to happen from a timeless state, well, there's no determinism to lead to it something happening. And there's nothing random or indeterminate happening in, in the sense of uh, physical things and um, events happening in the physical universe as we understand them, um, because there's nothing happening, because there's no time. And so what you would what you would need there is what's left. Well, libertar a libertarian choice. And so what sort of things have libertarian freedom? Personal agents do. And so I think what happens is you then now have a, a neutral monism that has a, a that has a mind. And I can I can just feel Joe shaking his head and saying no to all of this. But th I think what this runs into is the same problem that a lot of these things run into is the more you start to describe what that cause must be like, the more it begins to look like God, the more you talk about it. And so you have a neutral monist uh, subject substance that is um, that that has a has a mind. Oh, and we can also say that it has to be sufficiently powerful to create the universe. So now, so now you have a space uh, you have a, at least you have a timeless, um, sufficiently powerful, neutral monism, whatever that even is. All right. That serves as the, it's starting to sound a lot like God. It's like when Dillahunty or someone brings up, well, you've got a universe creating pixie. All right, let's talk about the universe creating pixie. The universe creating pixie 
um, uh, it has a mind. The universe creating pixie, uh, he used to say a group of them. Well, you, Occam's razor, call away all but one of those universe creating pixies. Now you've got, uh, and because of all these other things during the conceptual analysis, it's a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful universe creating pixie with a mind. You're just describing God. Um, but you can be a pixie theist, I guess, whatever that even means. You're just describing God and calling it a pixie. And so I think there might be a bit of that going on here, although I could be uncharitable here. Or I'm not trying to be uncharitable. I may be incorrectly describing what you're thinking of, but, but I'm certainly not trying to be uncharitable. So, um, so anyway, I don't think that works. You can't have this. This doesn't get there because from a timeless state, you have to go to um, a ca a, 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 the cause of the physical universe coming into being. And you can't have that um, without a libertarian choice, I don't think. So what then will we say about this non-metric time sort of an idea? Well, when we think about metric time, you, you would uh, we, we think about the fact that we can measure time in seconds and minutes and hours. And we think that that's because there is that there is something to time that those make sense to divide it up that way. There is something constant about a time in a certain respect. I mean, obviously we could talk about special relativity and all of that, but that we're tracking something real to a certain degree. Um, but what if that were not exactly the case in some state or other? Well, William Lane Craig again talks about this um, and refers to certain individuals who don't hold to this position, some of whom are mentioned in this video. And he says, by contrast, if time has no intrinsic metric, as metric conventionalists hold, then there just is no fact of the matter whether any non-overlapping temporal interval is either longer than, shorter than, or equal to our second. In that case, there is no answer to the question of whether our atomic clock, for example, really has a steady rate of change and so is a good measure of time. It is just a human convention that certain processes proceed at, at steady rates. There are few philosophers of time who defend metric conventionalism. There are no good arguments for it. And it seems highly counterintuitive to say, for example, that the duration my lunch break was, uh, the duration of my lunch break was not really shorter than the Jurassic Age. And then he goes on to say later in the article, so if God existing, now he's, now what he does here is he's taking this idea though for the existence um, prior to, and you can say prior to on this view, because on this view, time exists prior to the creation of the physical universe. And he's talking about theists who think about it this way. Time exists prior to the physical universe, but non-metric time. And the idea is if you had God, if you had no events happening, stands the physical universe and just God, and God was just there unchanging, um, then, then what would that be like? right? With no metric time. And he says this. So if God existing alone sands the creation were changeless, one could not differentiate one second from one trillion years in such a time. It would be meaningless to ask how long God existed prior to creating the world. So these thinkers hold that God has always existed in a non-metric time, which transcends our conventional measures of time. Padgett refers to this state as relative timelessness, but it is in fact a real time. So the idea here is you do have a real, like time has some sort of an existence. It has this ontology. It, there is time, saying as the physical universe for these theists. Um, so it's not timelessness like Craig holds to, um, but nothing is happening. So it's, you can't distinguish a second from a trillion years. And um, Craig looks at this and actually is, if, as far as I understand him, is says that's doesn't hurt the Kalam cosmological argument one bit, because um, even though I don't buy it, I, I go with a timeless existence stands the physical universe for God. Um, all you need for the Kalam is the beginning for metric time. So, so that's that's all fine and well and good.
So that is very interesting, but it still leaves us, leads us back to the same problem. Um, well, one problem is this is still somewhat undefined. In fact, he said amorphous time, right? Um, this is still somewhat undefined. And I, I, I even read a journal article where someone was referring to it. It's not exactly infinite. It's not exactly finite. You, you still have to ask this question about the beginning. It's, it's, it's difficult. And it may be there that, that uh, Joe can shoot me some journal articles and I can read some more about this uh, from the sources that he's thinking of. But, but putting even that aside, we still run back to this problem of in that sort of a situation where you have this um, non-metric, changeless situation, I still fail to see how that leads to a cause when you have no determinism, no change, and without change, no determinism and no randomness. I sense that what he's trying to get at is you have something like uh, the collapse of a quantum waveform with this quantum indeterminacy and something truly indeterminate does happen. So he's actually, if that's right, then he's actually thinking perhaps about the fact that theists, well, you may not be thinking about this, but it's similar to what theists think about how uh, you would have to have, make a libertarian free choice, which involves some level of indeterminacy. And he's saying we can get that indeterminacy through perhaps something like a quantum wave field without, um, without any need for theism. Well, there's still a couple of problems with that. And one problem with that is why hasn't this uh, quantum fluctuation happened uh, infinitely many times prior to this. Why, why is it happening now? And of course, then you get back to the question of what does it even mean to say now in a state where time is like that? Um, but but um, so, so that's one thing. Another thing is, and this admittedly would be borrowing from another theistic argument, some sort of a teleological argument, but that would make no sense of the incredible design we see that seems to have flown out of that initial cause. Um, it almost feels too good to be true. So I, I think uh, those are some thoughts on what has been said here. I'll say this. It's interesting. Um, but let's get back to the question. When we're talking about timeless, um, neutral monism and non-metric time and all of these sorts of things, I'm well aware that this stuff is discussed in the literature. I get it. I'm, I'm, I realize that now. But I'm just saying, does that seem... So what did I say in the video? I said, you have a past infinite universe. If you're an atheist, you have a past infinite universe. You have the universe coming to exist uncaused out of nothing or something far less clear than those. Well, is this less clear than those? Perhaps not. I think so, but perhaps not. I'll say this. I'll continue to read up on it. I'll continue to enjoy this. And I would ask uh, Joe and um, gosh, I can't remember the other guys. <laughs> So sorry. This is so bad because I planned for this. I could have remembered your name, but the, the other guy that, that uh, went first and we talked about um, Oppie with him. Uh, if, if either of you guys have journal articles to send me about this, I would sure love that. You can do that on Facebook or you can do that at uh, Braxton at TrinityRadio.org. I'd love to read those things or books uh, that, that you recommend and we'll continue the conversation. But to this point, I still remain satisfied with my position and I still think it is definitely, it, it seems undeniably the case that um, uh, non-theists have less options on the table than theists do. I think theists have one more option on the table to make sense of cosmology, and I think it fits everything really, really nicely. I also think it is a bit telling that when you start describing this uh, naturalistic alternative, um, it, it, as it begins to account for, or, or you think it accounts for, um, these things that theism would account for otherwise, it just starts to look more and more like theism to me. Um, but maybe I'm wrong.
but I don't think I am. I've enjoyed this. And listen, if you enjoy these kinds of shows and you want to support what we're doing here on Trinity Radio, then you can um, help us out at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. You can uh, also, one thing that you can do that's free, doesn't cost you a dime, is to subscribe to the channel. We really love that. So I hope that you'll do that um, and click that notification bell. And with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.